Hello and welcome to another episode of Film Exploration, continuing our 10-part first season of 90s movie, and today we shall delve into the 1994 classic Shawshank Redemption, starring Tim Robbins, Bob Gunton, William Sadler, and of course, Morgan Freeman. The benchmark of this globally seen perfect movie where we see Andy Dufresne serve a life sentence for a crime he didn't commit and gently follow his story throughout his time at Shawshank, only to find redemption right at the end, making it one of the best prison movies. In fact, one of the best movies of all time. And who would have thought this box office flop would later be known as the greatest movie of all time and sit pretty at the top of the 250 best IMDb movies list for, well, since I can remember. There are many elements to why people like Shawshank. In fact, when deciding if you like a movie or not, it almost comes down to the flip side of positivity. Now, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't presume to know why people like or hate certain things, but here's my two cents on it. The reason people don't remember films is because of something they don't like, and that usually trumps the initial bits of the stuff they do like. So, let me explain. Sometimes that negativity doesn't even allow you to see the movie in the first place. For instance, um, an actor might be in it that you don't like, or a genre you don't like, or... It's set in a time period that doesn't appeal to you. This is why trailers work so hard to create a spectacle of a movie, putting all the juicy bits in the trailer and really trying to sell the movie using their best scenes. Personally, I find the movie to be more attractive the less you know about it. Imagine a trailer for, let's say, Armageddon, which I'm going to be doing a podcast about next week, actually. You can imagine that trailer to be a flipping movie of its own. Explosion, space, asteroid, the cast, the one-liners, the action sequences, the music, everything. You're going to want to see that movie after you see that trailer. But it's like a sugar craving. The craving for sugar, the second you have it, goes away. It stays with you for a little bit, gives you a bit of energy, gives you a bit of, you know, pump. But then it's gone. Watch Armageddon, good blockbuster movie, and, and it's a bit like sugar. It's done after you, you know, you feel you feel bad afterwards that you even did it, you even watched this film and you enjoyed it because it's so bad. Well, not so bad, but you know, just should I have enjoyed it that much? Now, if you imagine doing a trailer for like Shawshank, what exactly in the trailer is going to get you to go there? What pull does this movie have? Why is it the best movie of all time? Why is it so remembered? I personally don't think it is the best movie of all time, but I don't know if it's not yet. I still haven't decided. I'm not sure. Because it changes all the time. Now, with memorable films, you tend to never reminisce about the bad bits, even though the film doesn't excel in the good bits. So what I'm saying is, a film, in my opinion, is only good if it can consistently not be bad throughout the entire movie. Does that make sense? It doesn't need to excel for me. It just needs to carry me through the journey whilst maintaining my attention. Drama genres are really good at doing this. My attention, or people's attention, don't really go anywhere when a film is not being bad. It stays with the movie for the journey. It doesn't need to excel at any point. I'm already committed. Only until the movie becomes bad, for whatever reason, does people's attention really lose focus. And what Shawshank does is it carries you through this entire life sentence of Andy at Shawshank by simply offering an everyday and realistic outlook on prison life. The fact that he's innocent makes all this more appealing to watch because your emotions while watching this movie is also reflecting Andy's. And Darabont takes you through his 35 years like you've been there for all this time and, well... Of course, when we find out the movie is actually a prison break movie, we have this sense of euphoria, a sense of release, that he's made it. And that only becomes possible if you allow yourself to sit through the entire journey in the prison. And that's exactly what Darabont does in this movie. Darabont being the, um, the director of this movie, Frank Darabont. 
And it's the entire reason why this film will probably be known as one of the best movies of all time. Now, just imagine a line, and during that 184 minutes, the line flows as the movie plays. 184 is the length of the movie. It dips up for excitement, and it dips down for boredom. I personally do not think there is one dip going downwards in that entire movie. Every film has a dip down somewhere. Even big movies do. I'm talking about most movies. You can probably find five minutes or even 40 seconds where the dip will go below the line, where it's a bit boring or you just don't care about that scene or whatnot. But with Shawshank... You're on the line or even above it sometimes. And don't get me wrong, if you're above it, you're not shooting for the stars. It's not a massive spike like for Armageddon with these big Hollywood action sequences. With Armageddon, it'll be going up every two seconds like a big spike, exactly like the sugar. Um, But you're just casually above it with Shawshank. And that's why this film is a masterpiece. Because when you get to the the revenge bit at the end, this is why the film's a masterpiece. Because for the final 40 minutes when he escapes and you see how he did it, when he what he does next, how he manages to get revenge on the prison warden. You're spiking through the roof for the entire uh, ending. And I shouldn't be even saying spiking. You stay up there because of the consistency of not being bad anywhere else in the movie. You stay up there for the entire 40 minutes. The second he escapes, you watch everything from then on. And it just stays at that high level. And that's what's so euphoric about it. You do not need a trailer to advertise this film. You just need one person to watch it and experience it. And the rest, as they say, is history. The movie, of course, was an adaptation of Stephen King's short story called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. It's kind of fascinating because Stephen King is known for writing mainly horrors and supernatural genres. So people would have naturally assumed with Shawshank Redemption that it would be some kind of terrorizing, scary story, especially with some of his films that have been adapted. And he was already quite well established in the early 90s. I mean, he already had film adaptations already come out in Hollywood with Pet Cemetery, Tim Roth in, I- in uh, IT and Tim Roth in It. Cujo in uh, 1983, Carrie, I think one of his first novels in 1976, which had a young John Travolta. So people already knew, you know, the genre and style of Stephen King's novel being adapted to the big screen. Now, the thing about the movies is that they've been adapted from Stephen King, and this has generated such a fan base for his unique and consistent telling of that genre. And people, especially the youth, really enjoy these cheap thrills and decent stories. So when Stand By Me came out, which wasn't anything to do with the horror genre, just simply a coming-of-age film about some kids looking for a body, and it turned out to be a cult classic and had nothing to do with horror or supernatural beings or anything like that. And Stephen, for me, Stephen King's best adaptations made made it into films are are the ones that are dramas, not horrors, that like Stand By Me and, of course, Shawshank Redemption. Stephen King gave... You know, he gave away the rights for free because he didn't have the faintest clue how they were going to make this short story into a film. Of course, Frank Darabont came onto the scene and he worked on the script for three years and King was quite impressed when he saw the finished product. He loved the idea, however, there was a lot of differences from the story to his original short story. Now, yeah, we have this era where people are cons- like consistently and constantly saying, oh my God, they've missed this out of the book when they go see a movie. Uh, they go into this like ranting mode. I mean, Harry Potter fans are being one of them, Twilight being another. And it's just, just a general moan to bitch about something they've missed out in a film and they did, or they did in a book, or they didn't do in a book. You know, oh, it's just a consistent rant about things with the relations between books and films. However, let me say this these are two completely different mediums. And the one key fundamental difference is the book acts as a guideline to how to make a movie. Movies sell more than books by like 50-fold. You must remember a screenplay's job is is to how to adapt a novel or short story into a film. A book has an 
infinite time to tell the story. A film doesn't. It only has three hours max. Not a lot of time. Another big difference is opinion. When you read, you entertain your imagination to do most of the work. And of course, your imagination won't be the same as many others. A film is done by the imagination of the studio, the artistic choice of the producers, experts. And some of those experts includes the author. Not to mention other people who've read this book time and time again, whose job it is to read this book. And they have to get the certain details that they need to write. Because what's most important is the movie is going to sell tickets it's going to make money now whether it comes down to casting choice or the color of someone's eye or ethnic change in casting or just general rewrites of a story you've got to watch the film separate from your knowledge of the book it's there as a guideline not to exactly mimic it if you want to rant then you just don't watch the movie again just it's quite simple just read the book over and over again and you know entertain yourself now, back in 1994, in a simpler time when people didn't get easily offended, the film made loads of changes and Stephen King was absolutely fine with them because he understood the story was still there. The main, the main premise was there. And the changes still respect the story. And that's the main thing. To him, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption was a short story. So he didn't think anything highly of it. it wasn't even, there isn't even a book called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. It's actually part of a short story in another book. And it's called, uh, what's it called? Different Seasons, where there's four separate stories, one of them being Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Another one's actually called The Body, which we know it has um, Stand By Me now. King was coming off, you know, big Hollywood successful movies making, you know, Pennywise and It, Children of the Corn, Carrie, Pet Cemetery, Misery, uh, The Shining, even though he wasn't a fan of the film. So he wasn't too focused on a short story like Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, you know, let alone many changes being made to it. I think he was in the middle of writing another novel, I think Dolores Claiborne during all this time. So his attention wasn't really with what Frank Darabont was doing. It's a good novel, by the way, if you haven't read it. So, I mean, some of the really big changes were like, you know, in the book, he's in prison for like 27 years. And I think in the movie, it's only like 20 years or 19 years, which isn't a big thing. And, you know, in, in the book, he has two rock hammers in, you know, in the movie, he's only got the one. And um, they never really specify in the book where he hides it. Of course, in the movie, he clearly puts it in the Bible. You know, salvin, salvation lies within. It's a great line. Um, but also in the book, he had a cellmate for his first year, so he couldn't actually do any tunneling. Otherwise, you know, he might rat on him. So they don't go into detail about how he got the fake IDs as well when he breaks out. And the warden doesn't actually commit suicide at the end in the book. In fact, nothing really happens to him or any of the prison guards. Oh, just Andy escapes. And then, you know, you don't really find out anything about them. So you know, the movie did adjust to make sure that, you know, they got the right stuff in and even introduced some other cinematic moments to best display the medium visually. The biggest change, however, was the casting of Red, played by Morgan Freeman. Now, originally, he's a white Irish man with red hair, hence the name Red. The casting was sort of down to Darabont, who loved his audition and, most importantly, his voice. And therefore, using this, you know, his voices to sort of narrate the entire movie. You know, very rarely I don't like films that have narrations. However, this actually manages to pull it off. Interestingly enough, the other film that works really well is Forrest Gump um, with Tom Hanks, um, and which is why which is actually the the film that was the main reason why Shawshank didn't perform well at the box office, but I'll come to that in a second. So yeah, Morgan was um, casted as Red, a black actor casted for a white role, and there was not one piece of dispute, not one negative thing said about it, and this wasn't the first time in Hollywood did a movie, uh, a move like this. They did this quite a lot in the 80s and in the 90s. They knew it was for the integrity of the movie and trusted the vision of what they were doing, and I think we can agree that Morgan Freeman gives an outstanding performance, and I couldn't see anyone else in it. He got an Oscar nomination for Best Leading Actor in it. There was no mention of discrimination 
discrimination or racism. It was just accepted and acknowledged as an artistic decision to better the movie, and it did. Harrison Ford, I think, was the original choice to play Red. And I think if he was going to be Red, then Andy Dufresne was going to be played by Tom Cruise. Uh, I, I, I don't I, I could kind of see Tom Cruise as Andy, but uh, Tom Cruise sort of rejected the role because he didn't want to work with a first-time director, you know, like um, uh, Frank Darabont, who no one actually knew at the time. Obviously, now we know him as um, he did The Green Mile, another Stephen King um, adaptation after this, and then he went on to do The Mist, another Stephen King adaptation. And then he basically created The Walking Dead, so that's why we haven't really heard much of him now because The Walking Dead's been going on for God knows how many seasons. But, you know... Obviously, these days, we can't really have an Oscar uh, ceremony without like an ethnic person being nominated in the acting category or a female director being nominated because we're in a new generation now where, you know, the art and work is pushed aside. So the perspective of the world seeing cinema isn't as racist or sexist or something else. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's absolutely rubbish and really tarnishes the integrity of the Oscars now. What we need is more opportunities for female directors and actors of colour, not whitewashing existing performances to satisfy the general public. The legitimacy of the 90s is what I love, where they were able to make these kind of decisions without a generation breathing down their necks claiming they're racist for an artistic direction. Anything, and I mean anything, can be swung to be racist, sexist, ageist, anti-feminist, transphobic, homophobic. You know, when we get to the year 2030, if a movie doesn't have an actor or characters that are not of colour, old, female trans or gay i mean there's obviously going to be an uproar and it's going to be for the wrong reasons i mean you can already kind of see this thing kind of brewing up already so i'm, I'm i don't even think it's going to be we don't even have to wait till 2030 with shawshank a film that doesn't have any female characters in it a film that portrays the only real violent threat as homosexuals a film that doesn't actually explore trans even with a good, good opportunity to do so with the sisters who are all men a film that clearly demoralizes young people as punks and airheads, and for a film to tackle the perspective of old people being slow and useless. The first person to get beaten up in prison was because of his weight and his over-emotions, and for black people being perceived as smugglers and the go-to guy for equipment. This film is still somehow known as the best film of all time, and it's because they didn't think of any of the stuff I've just mentioned. They focused on telling the story in the most authentic way possible without worrying about today's prejudice and opinions. And bear in mind... This film came out when the world was dealing with the rise of AIDS, the killing of Rodney King, the feminist riots over the films in the late 80s, early 90s. So it just kind of proves Hollywood and cinema should not bow down to this new generation and instead reignite this flame for genuine storytelling told in an authentic way. And we may even see a Shawshank Redemption-esque film of this era. The film received mild criticism because of the way they were glorifying prisoners and how we became to feel, you know, sympathy for them, especially with the likes of Brooks and Reds. But besides that minor criticism, the film was not really well responded when it came out anyways. The film had the unfortunate time of, timing of coming and being released out in 1994, the same year as Pulp Fiction and the same year as Forrest Gump. I mean, Tom Hanks was pretty much the biggest star at the time. He came off an Oscar the year before with Philadelphia, went on to win Best Actor, and he actually won that year with Forrest Gump. And uh, that's the, you know... No, it's the second time an actor's done it back-to-back. -back. I think the first was... Uh, I think it was Spencer Tracy in the 30s. I need to check that, but I think that's right. But yeah, he beat out Morgan Freeman for Shawshank, um, winning Best Actor. But people were flooding in to see Forrest Gump and paid no attention to Shawshank. Forrest Gump ended winning up Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, cleared the floor at the Academy. 
Another reason why the film didn't really do well at the box office, the title was way too long. It was a mouthful, Shawshank Redemption. People were just calling it that prison movie or, you know, that Shawshank movie. You know, it, so it bombed at the box office. It didn't even make its budget back. Now, when the Oscars happen, now the Oscars usually happen a few months, sometimes even, you know, six months after the release of the movie at the cinema. It got seven nominations, and people were like, wait, what a sec, what's, what's this film? Shawshank's got seven nominations. Seven nominations. So, you know, this is when, obviously, people went to the cinema now, and something magical happened. Like, in 1994, obviously, you don't have phones, WhatsApp, Skype. You don't have, you know, you don't really have emails, so you have video rentals. And it absolutely destroyed the record for most rented film at the video store. It was breathing life. It got a second chance. Once one person saw it, they raved. And then another saw it. And the video store's employees would soon recommend people to give this film a go. People were getting curious about how this film got seven nominations with the like of its competitions like Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump. It's very rare a film gets a second chance. And it was released and people flocked. Flocked. The movie built up as the years went on, becoming known as an instant classic. And this film is like two and a half hours long, so it was a perfect movie to put on cable channels in America and, of course, in UK. So it brought out like you know it was TNT and TCM. And I remember, I think I first watched this movie on a channel called TCM. I don't know if you remember it. And it was perfect with the adverts as well for cable channels. It's like three hours long with the adverts because the movie's like two and a half. So you add the adverts as three hours. So it means you know it means more money for ads for cable channels. It means less room to spend more money for on other films. So it just grew and grew like a fine wine, aging gracefully. When it comes down to it, the film offers a really realistic outlook on human survival uh, and also brotherhood and, more importantly, hope. It sets down the message that with enough determination and with enough consistency, you can achieve a goal. Time and pressure, like Andy Dufresne says, hope is a wonderful thing. Now, I must mention that this must be the film that Tim's, Tim Robbins is remembered for. He was relatively unknown, and he kind of still is. I think most people just know him from that guy in Shawshank, and he's just an incredible actor. And it just proves that it only takes one role to really solidify your place in the history books. I mean, he was fantastic in Mystic River, if you've ever seen that. He actually won his Oscar in that film. So a Clint Eastwood drama film about a missing girl. It's also got Sean Penn in it as well. He's great in it. But this range Tim Robbins has is overlooked. It's the expression he pulls in Shawshank, the eyes, how he changes the softness in his voice to grit. And the hair and makeup team had to make sure whoever played Andy had this 40s style of hair. It was quite common that actors in the 40s would have their hair slicked back. And this would sort of connote the steadiness and composure. And for uh, for some actors, especially like uh, Gary Cooper or Jimmy Stewart, it shows he's a good guy. Which is why villains and just general antagonists had a fringe or a piece of hair going over their eye, which they later expressively shown in comic books in Heroes and Villains. And what they do with actors when there's a moment of imbalance or struggle through the story, the hair will actually represent this by the slick hair being disrupted and going over his eyes. And Shawshank does this repeatedly with uh, Tim Robbins' hair in the movie, so look out for it when you watch it again. But yeah, I think it's just worth watching anything with Tim Robbins, and I don't know if you know this actually, but Tim Robbins is actually the reason we know who Jack Black is. I mean, the two are really good friends, and Tim Robbins got him his first role back in, oh, it was about 1992 in a film called Bob Roberts, which is a quite a funny film. You often see Tim Robbins uh, cameo in Jack Black films like uh, Tenacious D, The Pig of Destiny, High Fidelity of John Cusack, great film, and uh, Anchorman as well. But I must conclude with, you know, with the genre and general theme again. I must conclude with the genre and general theme again. A prison movie that surpasses all others in its genre, in my opinion. I mean, this film's considered the best film in the world, so of course it's going to surpass all the other genres, but... (laughs) 
the genre was sort of first introduced in the 1920s where they sort of had these prison movies everyone in black and white and their outfits digging holes outside and it really got going in the 30s with movies like i'm a fugitive with a um with a chain gang and road gang and obviously carrying on with the great films like papillon and Escape from Alcatraz, Birdman from Alcatraz, the, the the Great Escape with Steve McQueen. I mean, the genre continued. It became a really popular genre because it can explore different themes to do with like the human spirit that an outside world quite, um, finds quite appealing. Because when the chips are down, when society is taken away from you, it's just down to raw determination and basic predatory instincts of survival. And this is why the genre is sort of carried out, carried on. You know, even now with series like Prison Break and explored subgenres like comedy and The Longest Yard or Me Machine or uh crime genres like uh escape plan or bronson and you have all these hybrid genres that use this basic structure of iconography of a basic prison genres to further adapt these films throughout time and i think what makes shawshank stand up um stand up for itself amongst all the others in the film is that we don't actually know for sure if andy's innocent until much later on but from the way tim robbins plays him we kind of side with him we feel sorry for him already and the idea of hope you know gets killed for him and the audience are with him when he's getting beaten up, when he's getting raped by the sisters, and then all up until when Tommy reveals he's innocent. But then, you know, he gets killed by the warden, and then the warden putting him in the hole and not giving him justice. And you're just with Andy in this movie throughout the entire thing. And I think that's why Red is such a good character, because he's his only real friend there. I mean, you see them, you know, conversing a lot. And he becomes our friend, because you're on Andy's side, and Red is his friend, so he becomes our friend. And that's what makes him so likable. And it's really what makes the movie. It's easy to do in a prison movie when you're with the character in one location throughout. But the journey you go through with Andy is almost as raw as it can be. And I just think the themes of hope plays a powerful message to audiences because it's so relatable. And almost provokes people to do more with themselves because we have time available to us that we waste. And maybe we don't use our time wisely. But if you do, if you chisel away, you know, if you chisel away for a dream, you know... The movie sort of tells you that you're going to get there eventually. It's relatable and it's a powerful message and it's shown in Shawshank as achievable throughout great odds and great obstacles you will actually get there. And one last thing, another really good sort of theme is change. You see film exploring changes, both scary and both reassuring. Uh, both times are represented with Brooks and Red. Brooks obviously representing the uncertainty and unwellness to change. And then, of course, you have Red, who battles change and is helped by the use of hope from Andy's letter, where we finally meet him at the end of the Pacific Ocean. So it's very juxtaposed between when Red leaves prison and when Brooks does. It's another relatable theme that really makes this movie more attractive, the idea of making a big change in your life. It's always good revisiting this movie after a period and recognising how amazing the film still is. It probably is the greatest film of all time. However, I'm still waiting for that statement to be proven wrong. You don't really know until time passes. I mean, if you can watch a film a 50th time and still feel the same way you do when you watch it the first time, then I think you're on for a winner there. I think I watched Dunkirk for a fifth time the other day and the film honestly does just get better and better the more you watch it. It's a really controversial opinion, but I think Christopher Nolan's best film is uh, Dunkirk, but that's just for another podcast. But it's always good to explore a film a few times to see what changes and what sticks. Shawshank being on cable constantly when I was growing up really dug that in my mind and it sort of lacked my options on what to watch because it was always on. It's sort of harder to do now because we always select movies and stream them. So it's a very you know new and scary world we're in now. But... That's my sort of two cents on Shawshank Redemption, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, 
listen please follow my account on instagram it's uh, film exploration ah or one word or lowercase um and if you want any film news updates upcoming podcasts it's all on there so thank you again for listening to another episode of film exploration with ash hurry and have a really good day <laughs>